Welcome back to The Socialist Shelf with me, Jacob, here with Joss. Hello. How's it going? Yeah. And uh, this week we are talking about Jurassic Park, the novel, um, you know, often overlooked in favor of the much more famous movie. We actually hosted a Twitter poll um, based on all suggestions people have given us and Jurassic Park won out. Um, I'd like to say we had millions of votes, uh, and but it was actually in the billions um, when this was selected. Uh, no, no, it was only we we only had a, a small handful of votes, but we appreciate those who did vote. And uh, yeah, I am um, excited to talk about Jurassic Park. What about you, Josh? Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll um we'll we'll get to billions under socialism. This will be a mandatory podcast. That is true. That is true. It will be it will be uh, state sponsored and all the schools, all that sort of stuff. Yes. To hear our opinions on like you know random yes. novels and 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 um and yeah yeah jurassic park in particular is very near and dear to uh very near and dear to both our hearts it's a i would describe it as a cultural touchstone mm. of uh of my of uh, our generation i was born in uh, 1993 the same year the book came out so you know i wouldn't have grown up with a book um but i definitely the movie would have been in my house i love and the movie yeah yeah exactly um the I'm sorry. The movie came out in 1993. The book came out in 1990. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I um the first one I remember seeing in the theaters was the third uh was the third movie, Jurassic Park three, which not as good, but uh, you know by then by then the uh, the novelty of um of the CG of the effects of the dinosaurs had uh, kind of uh, worn off, and you could mm-hmm. sort of see the cracks in the um, in the story and the characters. Um, but the original Jurassic Park still holds up, I think, on all those fronts. Uh, I don't think I can ever watch uh, Jeff Goldblum and like see any cracks in anything. I'm just kind of like, oh, certainly. yeah. But uh, no, uh, certainly, certainly by the time like Jurassic World rolls around, the 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 sheen is gone for me at the very least. Oh well, I mean, <laughs> Jurassic Jurassic World is all sheen. That's the problem. But I mean, yeah, we could, yeah, the interest <laughs> is gone. But yeah, but today we are talking about the book, though. Doubtless the movie will come up um, because that's you know. That's how people understand it. Most, I think most people might not even be aware there is a novel, or if they are, they're only tangentially aware. But uh, there is a writer. His name is Michael Crichton, not Crichton, as I thought until just before we recorded this podcast. And uh, Joss, you want to give us a little rundown on this fella? Yeah, yeah, Michael Crichton. And he was born October 23rd, 1942 in Chicago. He spends his childhood in Long Island. And from a very young age, from about sixth grade, there's a great uh, CNN interview where he goes into a, a bunch of uh, the nitty gritty that you um, that uh, you won't necessarily find just Googling around. But um, from a very young age, from sixth grade, he was very interested in writing. Um, when he was 14 years old, he had an article about a family trip to Arizona published in the New York Times. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And well, I, I so did you read the article? I, I I tried to look for it. It's behind a paywall, and I didn't uh, really. I, yeah, I didn't really. It's not worth that much, no. Exactly. I'm sure it was a um, fine trip. Yeah, yeah, no, and he's and he's a fine writer, um, or was a fine writer actually. But we'll get into that. Mm, yeah. Um, so he went to Harvard in uh, 1960, and originally there he studied literature, but after a dispute with a professor in the English department there, he switched to biological anthropology. And this was this was an interesting story. Um, he suspected that he was being graded unfairly, that the professor just didn't like his writing style. So he actually submitted an essay by George Orwell under his own name for an assignment. Um, and he'd cleared this with another professor beforehand, so he had a witness that he wasn't just plagiarizing. This was like an experiment. Um, and the essay got a B-minus. 
Mm. And, you know, from Crichton's perspective, he's like, okay, well, you know, George Orwell was a wonderful writer. So, you know, I guess, I guess I wasn't going to get a fair shake if, uh, if uh, he he himself was going to get a B minus, you know? Right. So, you know, I don't think we need to get into our, our opinion on George Orwell. Like we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll when get we do the next we kind of did in our first episode. So you yeah. Know, we'll in the brand it, new but... world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's coming. Believe me. Mm-hmm. Um, so he graduates from Harvard summa cum laude. Have you pronounced that in mm-hmm. 1964? He gets a traveling fellowship in bioanthro and he's actually a visiting uh, anthropology lecturer at Cambridge at the age of 23. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what were Very you doing clever. at 23, right? What was I doing yeah. at 23? Uh, not that. Not yeah, that. certainly not uh, not being a lecturer of any type. Um, so the following year, in 1965, he starts med school at Harvard, and he writes his first book at this time, which is called Odds On. Mm-hmm. And it's a crime thriller. Most of his early books are crime thrillers. And he uses the pen name uh, John Lang. Because at this time, he wants to be a doctor, and he's concerned that, well, if I write under my own name, my patients will think that I'm mining their uh, mining their experiences for my stories. Um, As he, he likely like, would. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you, you write what you know. Uh-huh. And indeed, Michael Crichton knew a whole lot, and he wrote a, and he wrote a whole lot. Um, so he, as John Lang, he writes eight books for pocket money for, uh, furniture and food, as he describes it, um, adventure novels, crime thrillers, mainly. And he himself says that, uh, at this time, you know, he's writing airport novels. They're easy to write. They're quick to read. You knock them out on a flight. He describes his main competition as in-flight movies, which yeah. that was a surprise to me that there was in-flight movies like in the sixties, but it, it goes back. Yeah. This was, this was nuts to me. Like, um, you want to talk about like uh, a Jerry B. Jenkins type who's like incredibly prolific and disciplined. Just tons, yeah. Yeah. Well, his second book, Scratch One, he writes that in eleven days. Wow, eleven days while he's uh, while he's on a traveling fellowship in Europe. Um, and his third book, his third book's a minor success. So according to Crichton, he got fifteen hundred dollars for it, which is about eleven and a half thousand dollars today. So you know, you consider the type of book that you can write in like two or three weeks. That's that's pretty good return on, uh, on that kind of effort. More yeah. than I've made on my ghostwriting. And, and so. yeah, <laughs> you'll get there. We'll all get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Dude, and his, yeah, his writing routine was nuts. Like, it evolved over time. Um, I don't know if he was doing this, like, very early on, but um, putting together a draft of a new novel would generally take him about a month and a half when he really mm. got started in his career. Um, and he was on a strict schedule that demanded he wake up increasingly early throughout the uh, for, throughout the process. So by the end of a draft, he'd be sleeping from just 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Right, okay. And, and he wrote his early he wrote his early books at something like 10,000 words daily, which Holy cow. I struggle I struggle getting to like um 1500, you know. So Yeah, that that mean that's uh I mean I think 1500 if I do 1500 in a day, I feel like I've done I've done good work. So 10,000 that is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's 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 nuts to me. You're but on yeah. some like Stephen King speed at that point. Yes, yes, he's mm-hmm. yeah. Well, not as prolific as uh, as King, you know. He's certainly um, he's cer- he's certainly up there. His his name is huge, and you know mm-hmm. we'll get into that. Um, so his fourth book, A Case of Need, that's written under the name Jeffrey Hudson, and he takes that pseudonym from a from history. He takes it from a court dwarf in 17th century England by that okay. name. Interesting. Have I mentioned that Crichton himself was six foot nine? No, you did not. But that is. I, that is that is uh huh that that was the name Jeffrey Hudson right Jeffrey Hudson yeah 
Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the picture of the court dwarf and the uh, Queen Henrietta Maria, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the story of this guy is wild. Like he gets he he gets challenged to a duel at one point, and the guy who challenges him shows up with a with a uh, uh, water gun because he doesn't take him seriously. And oh. Hudson just like ices the guy, like shoots him directly between oh the God. eyes. <laughs> so was he choosing Jeffrey Hudson? I was it a joke, or was did he feel some relationship to him, or do we know? Is literally just irony. This guy's a yeah. dwarf and. Uh, Crichton was a giant. Yeah. Okay. But, fair enough. But yeah. But yeah. I bring up. I bring up a case of need because it represents a shift toward the Crichton that we're more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Like it's still a thriller, but it's more explicitly science oriented. The protagonist is a doctor. His expertise is is pivotal to the mystery that he's solving. And it's around this time, after three years of med school, that he realizes his true passion is indeed writing. Yeah. So he starts doing the Lovecraft thing, right? He starts publishing book reviews in the New York Times. He writes some criticism of Vonnegut's. Yeah, um, one of the only guys I've ever read that didn't like Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I got to get around to reading Slaughterhouse Five. I've only Fantastic. read um, I've only read Mother Night. They're all good, but man, Slaughterhouse Five is something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, regardless, uh, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. So his first his first book that he publishes as Michael Crichton is uh, the Andromeda Strain. Mm-hmm. which was written in 1969. Um, he writes it over three years between his uh, shorter projects, and it's a major success. The film rights sell for a quarter million dollars. This while he's in med school, right? Yeah. So, like, he's he's set. He's killing it. Um, and he gets his MD that same year in 1969. He does a postdoc fellowship at the Salk Institute in, in La Jolla for a year, and he publishes three more of his, uh, you know, airline books at this time. He also gets into supernatural stuff, like he mm-hmm. experiments with astral projection, with like clairvoyance, he speaks to psychics. He's he doesn't consider these things as like a replacement for science, like he doesn't go he doesn't go full Gwyneth Paltrow, but like he decides that there's something to these phenomenon that we just haven't figured out yet. You know? I think that actually will tie in pretty interestingly to some of the things uh Malcolm says in the book about a like moving beyond science. I have a few thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So around this time, he starts writing screenplays in the 70s. Some of his novels get adapted for film, for TV movies. Uh, Binary becomes the movie Pursuit in 72. The Terminal Man becomes a film in 1974. Um, and his directorial debut was actually Westworld in 1973. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which which uh, was a surprise to me. I didn't know that he originated it. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, Cards on the Table have not seen Westworld, the old one or the new one. Yeah, well, neither <laughs> I. I got a buddy yeah. who's who's super super into it, so I'm, oh, yeah, I'm sure I know a lot of people are. Yeah, um, he he's he's able to take a year off after this movie comes out because it's a box office success, but the audience response isn't everything that he expects it to be. He mm-hmm. wanted at this time to express a message about corporate greed. It didn't really land. It's more remembered for the action, right? Though you know right. the, the the theme is certainly there, and it certainly it comes back in the um in the new one, from what I understand. Um, I so do think I do think uh, Westworld was one of the first movies to ever use a uh, CGI, though, which is interesting. Oh yeah, um, it's one of the and so that would have been a, a decision he mm-hmm. chose, which is interesting. Um, that actually makes me interested in watching the old Westworld. We should absolutely yeah. So he continues to write and direct through the eighties. He gets some hits. He gets some misses. Um, and it's in 1990 that he publishes Jurassic Park, as I said. And this is based on a screenplay uh, that he wrote actually back in 1983. Mm-hmm. And 
how the, how this comes about is late in 1989, he's shooting the shit with Steven Spielberg and he tells him about it. Spielberg's interested. Spielberg's on board. And Universal actually gets the rights for Spielberg in May of 1990, six months before the book is published. Mm, okay. So, so it's going to be it's 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 got weight behind it right off the bat. And he's a major enough figure at this point that he gets ultimately two million dollars to adapt the book. He demands a million and a half uh, fee, non-negotiable uh, for the rights, and then he gets paid an additional half a million dollars to uh, work on the screenplay. Man. Um, and the movie drops in 1993, and it goes so three on three years to, after the book, right? Yes, yeah, three mm-hmm. years after the book, and it goes on to make 914 million dollars. Mm. Which, yeah, 914 million dollars is a lot now. This was 914 million dollars in 1993, right? Right, and it gets. In re-release, uh, twenty years later, uh, it finally cracks a billion. It's this movie was huge. It was in large part responsible for the dinosaur craze of the '90s, because you know because of the sheer spectacle of it. Because they nailed you know both the in terms of practical effects and CGI, they produced a you know they produced a vision of uh, real dinosaurs. And that music, people. come on, yeah, come on. oh yeah, John Williams yeah. is still kicking around. That's amazing. Oh dude. yeah. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I mean, obviously there's a whole brand that comes out of it too. I mean, the sheer amount of shirts and posters and this and that. I mean, just, I mean, obviously now at Universal, you have a Jurassic Park park. Like, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a huge intellectual property. Yes. Yes. And it's everything that, uh, it's everything that uh, John Hammond in the book would have wanted it to really, be. It really, it really is. It really is. So he goes from success to success, Crichton does. He goes on to create ER the following year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he publishes The Lost World the year after that. Uh, the year after that, he writes uh, the movie Twister. He writes the novel Airframe. Um, it's hard to overstate just how big he was. Like he, until noted transphobe J.K. Rowling came along, mm-hmm. he was bar none the biggest author in the world. Yep. Uh, he had in 1995 the country's number one best-selling book, the number one movie, and the number one TV show. These were Lost World. Congo and ER Insane. and he repeat, yeah and he repeated this in 1996 he had airframe he had twister again he had ER nobody else has managed that let alone twice two years in a row I mean writing I'm, that I mean yeah. the, the his directorial stuff I mean didn't he I think he wrote and directed the great train robbery as well I know you hopped over that but uh yeah like, great train robbery so you're talking about a guy who is like you know worked with Steven Spielberg Sean Connery and also written and also done TV and also went to med school like <laughs> Oh yeah, the 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 breadth on this guy is insane. Yeah, and he parlays that knowledge of his, that scientific background of his, into into his um, into his works in in a way that we'll get into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he was huge at his height. He was earning a hundred million bucks a year from his work. Man, yeah, that is he, just he, man. And he 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 um. He dies pretty young, um, November 4th, 2008. He's only 66 of uh, laryngeal cancer. It's It was kind of sudden because it was kind of a, a private struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he 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 definitely, you know, at the point that he died, he was definitely ahead, right? Yeah. He was, he, 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 was, he lived the life that, um, that I think every author uh, dreams of pretty much. Right. Just, you know. Well liked. He he's a household name. His works continue to be adapted to this day. Um, hey, he's not he's not done yet. He's got another book coming out in twenty twenty four. Yeah, that's uh, right. The with um, James Patterson. 
Yes, the the volcano one um, yeah. in, in Hawaii, which is funny because because Hawaii is where um where Jurassic Park was filmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, yeah. He had some. Um, the about the only thing that I could say that I could say is, is really weird about him is he had, as we were discussing uh, just recently, we had he had some really odd blind spots in his science. Really he quick was... before before I uh before you hop into that, yeah, um, I wanted to say one more thing. He also he also uh, worked as a consultant in intellectual property law and worked on several video games. Yes, just wanted to yes. note that. Yes, I, I just wanted to note that before we got into some of the other stuff. It's just you talk about like a renaissance man or whatever. It's 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 truly it's just truly insane how much he did. Um, and so before I uh, I just wanted to say how much respect I have for the mind he had before I you know say some pretty negative things about him and also this book. <laughs> yes, yes, because it's uh, so he was an avowed environmentalist. You know, he recognized that neither major American party had the best interests of the planet at heart. You know, they start capital. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't believe in anthropogenic climate change. Yeah, which is he didn't interesting. Believe, yeah, he didn't believe the science was there. You know, in you know, back when you know, back when we think back when it was still called um, global warming rather yeah. than uh, rather than climate change. You know, he was definitely on the um, on the anti side of that debate. Right. He. And he latched onto some paper from 2002 about some areas of Antarctica experiencing cooling trends. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, that's not inconsistent with the global trend of warming. Some, you know, it happens unevenly around the world. But like he, I mean, the the people who wrote this paper literally came out after afterwards and said, "Yeah, this guy's taking us completely out of context and using it in a completely weird and uh, kind of cranky way." Um, what? So yeah, it's it's so yeah, cooling trends are not inconsistent with the global trend of warming here and there. What it is consistent with, I think, is his pathological desire to depoliticize science and to, mm. you know, yep. and to approach it in a very in a, in a very sort of um, you know, um philosopher king kind of way. He he identified in his 2004 book State of Fear. State of Fear mm-hmm. gets a lot of shit for this. He identified global warming as the next boogeyman used as a tool for social control huh. after after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? Right. You know, so instead of, uh, you know, instead of pivoting to, um, you know, because you and I would consider, okay, what's the next boogeyman after anti-communism? Oh, terrorism, right? The war right. on terror. Yeah. No, he believes that, that um, you know, that... Um, that it's like, it's like climate change or global warming that they're going to use that for control. Yeah, if, that's, you know, if that's the case, they're not doing a very good job of it. Well, yeah, you know, and, you know, to the and to the extent that that's happening, right? It's just to, um, you know, it's just to keep people out of, you know, keep people out of the environmental struggle, right? And to mm-hmm. reduce um, the issue of climate change to one of individual consumption. Yes, you know? exactly. There's yeah. not been a whole lot of actual, you know, intervention. Certainly not against anything um, with any power. And you know, and who, who knows what he would have thought if he had lived to today? You know, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it seems, I, it seems a lot of even the old heads who denied it are, are sort of eating their words today or sort of saying, well, I never said it wasn't, you know, so you, you, you might, you might see who, who knows, but he did pass away. What? 2008 is when he died. Uh, yeah. 2008. So mm-hmm. yeah. Obama would have literally just been elected. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. So this, and he didn't die. I mean, he was, he was 66, but he wasn't, you know, ancient. So, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's fascinating guy. Um, you know, and uh, really just, just, continuously he's got new stuff you know one one has to wonder what he would be doing today because he was on he had the pulse 
of everything, TV, you know, movies, video games, books, obviously, um, always figuring out where to be at the right time. Like one wonders, would he be a TikTok influencer? I don't know. <laughs> like, what's a Michael Crichton TikTok look like? I'm almost, I'm kind of afraid to know. And I tell you what, you know, with all the with all the stuff in the news this year about uh, about AI, um, mm-hmm. that's what he was really interested in toward the yep. end of his life. So you know, to see him engage with that at the age of like eighty, you know, mm-hmm. that and that would be, I would I would genuinely be interested in uh, in hearing his commentary on the stuff because if because all of his all all of his stuff all of his stuff. Um, the stuff that he says that's not about climate change, you know, as we'll get into, is pretty intriguing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, he's. Uh, as we'll get into uh, in the novel, um, and you know, obviously he's written a ton of things, and Jurassic Park is obviously with its context, it is a novel written with a sort of movie also in mind. So you've kind of got to think of it in that way. It's obviously not a, it's not a novelization of a film in the sense of, uh, you know, what you typically imagine a novelization of a film, like it comes afterwards or it comes out with it. But it was written with this sort of movie mindset going into it. So that definitely like kind of colors the book. Um but the, it, nevertheless, there is like a lot here. It isn't, you can tell there's real effort in the book. It's not super casually written. It's not, while I, while I do feel like it's written a lot like an airplane novel, uh, because I just think that's how he writes. I don't think it's written like without care. There's definitely a lot of thought here. Um, oh, yeah. And there's a lot of uh, the political uh, aspects of Jurassic Park are fascinating as we'll get into it. But yeah, uh, you had anything else on Michael Crichton before we start talking about this book? Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, um, so what's, what's funny, um, is that the character that he described as most resembling himself in his work is the best character in this book, which is Ian Malcolm. Right. Interesting. So I, I mean, I, think I, I mean, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't surprise either of us, but yeah, we'll get into, mm-hmm. we'll get into the whys of it when we uh, start getting into this book. So you've just finished it now. Yes. Yes. I, I finished it today, actually. Yeah. What do you think? Um, you know, it, it, I, the movie's better. And I don't usually say that about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tend to say a movie is better than a book, but um, I genuinely was not blown away by Jurassic Park. It had parts I really liked in it. Um, and I wanted to like it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was going through it, and it's not like it's a hard read, I don't think it's dense or anything like that. I just found a lot of it to just be sort of, um, trying to think of a good way to phrase it it's it's rare in a novel that uh for me for like action scenes to just i'm completely out of them but in this i'm always wanting them to just like get back to having conversations yep um i and um and obviously that's the strength of a movie as it's so dramatic but i will say this uh this book is written uh in in such a way that i'm very interested in the characters having conversations with one another especially talking about you know the science and the concepts and the changing world when it's actually you know what you think of when you think of jurassic park i mean people running from dinosaurs it's kind of it really it's not for me i i found that those parts to be actually pretty boring um this last 50 pages i found to be pretty like insufferable like just i i really was not a huge fan of this book, even though I love some of the concepts. I mean, it's incredibly creative. Um, it's, uh, and, and, and I, I honestly didn't find it to be, you know, a super compelling book. However, in, you know, it's marriage with this movie that is so good. I do, I do, you know, still love Jurassic park, you know, as a concept. And I do like some things that come out of this, but man, like I'm just reading about like, you know, 
um, the kids and uh, the Dr. Grant just on the river and I just don't care for a lot yeah, of it. The, <laughs> I, I, I didn't like I didn't like the kids. You know, mm-hmm. and like they're 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 okay in the movie, you know, because they have because uh, they have Dr. Grant to kind of uh, to kind of keep them in line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're as a as a means for um, exploring uh, Grant's character development. Um, and they're useful in the end, you know, fighting the uh, Velociraptors and whatnot. Sure. Um, but, you know, in the book, they're not they're not all that interesting. They're just younger. And that's not really I mean, they're 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 bickering all the time, like uh, like siblings do, and the novelty wears off quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And there's also the novel also has more characters that are all kind of redundant. I feel like you know you have like uh, the the uh, Samuel L. Jackson character in the movie kind of com- compresses several characters into one of like park administrators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just a lot of just like sort of names going around of you know people who are like this is a park administrator and this is a park administrator and this guy is and it's just uh you know i i, I kind of uh there's only a couple characters i really latch on to hammond the you know old man who runs the park um awesome. and ian malcolm you know uh the guy who jeff goldblum plays in the movie and this sort of math this rock star mathematician which is obviously just a funny thing to imagine <laughs> I, I i like him quite a bit um and um, so the, those are definitely the, the sort of standout characters in the book to me. But we can get into the plot. Um, and it's not super different from the movie, but it does have a few key differences. Um, it opens up, as all uh, great stories do, in Costa Rica. Um, and uh, basically, there's a dinosaur infestation in Costa Rica. Um, they're getting off the island. Um, and that's that's kind of a thing that gets addressed. You know, it's got some parts of and, and you're seeing sort of the effects of Jurassic Park on the outside world. You know, you're seeing um people flown into Costa Rica who are getting injured on the island and they're trying to cover it up. You're seeing these little dinosaurs getting off the island and you know they're one bites a kid and and there's uh you know uh attacks on elderly and and children um happening as sort of life finds a way as it'll say later in the novel and 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 the dinosaurs migrate off the island mm. and find their way off migrate off this supposedly in unescapable prison of an island which of course uh you know the general concept behind it is i'm sure anyone listening to this is aware is the um this very very rich very very eccentric man john hammond has created a theme park with dinosaurs on it he has used dna of dinosaurs caught um in mesquite from mosquitoes who were trapped in amber for millions of years to uh clone dinosaurs and uh you know they're not perfect it's not perfect recreations they've got to do a little genetic um you know meddling here and there um i think uh michael crichton is too uh is too you know um interested in the science to just say oh it's perfectly preserved um and also you know it does tie into the plot a little bit mm-hmm. but um yeah, so they've created this what's supposed to be the greatest attraction on work on Earth, or Jurassic Park, and um, of course, in this sort of very um, arrogant billionaire sense, this John Hammond who sees himself as this savior of the world in a very Silicon Valley esque way, mm. um, has you know created what he thinks to be the greatest attraction in all of human history, and he can see no wrong with it, even though his employees. Um, here and there, even though they're all kind of lackeys and they're obviously on his payroll and they're all responsible ultimately, um, you know, the upper level employees are, they all do kind of constantly warn him that there's, you know, maybe issues. So the sort of central thesis of this is due to issues on the island, due to some workers dying um, to, you know, velociraptor attacks, um, he's got to bring in some specialists 
um, on science and whatnot to, you know, give the sign off and make sure uh, everything's fine, keep the investors happy so they can get through another few months to their open. Mm -hmm. Yes. And these scientists are um, Dr. Alan Grant, who is a paleontologist working in the uh, Badlands, and uh, Dr. Ellie Sattler. She's a student of his. She's a paleobotanist. Yes. And then there's also um, and then he also brings in um, Ian Malcolm is brought in by his lawyer um, um, as a, and he's a mathematician who's been critical. And, and he basically is famous for having um, what do you he's basically got he's 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 well known for having chaos theory. He writes about chaos and how um, systems cannot be controlled and they will spin out of control. And the more complex the system, uh, the more little little tweaks will send them spiraling in one direction or another. Um, and then, you know, you have that um, lawyer himself, which is uh, Donald, is it Gennaro? Is that how you say it? Gennaro? Uh, Gennaro, yeah. Gennaro? You have Donald Gennaro, the uh, the, the the lawyer, uh, yes. also brought in. And he uh, works for a law firm that has a pretty large stake in Jurassic Park and is, you know, wanting to make sure their investment goes well. Mm-hmm. Yes, and there's a and there's another um, and there's another element to all this, of course, which is that um, Doc, uh, Mr. Hammond is not the only he's not the only game in town when it comes to dinosaur DNA, dinosaur cloning. Nope. He, yeah, his company InGen has a has a rival. What's the shoot? What was the rival's company's name? Um, um I know it's a uh, Biosyn. 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 Yeah, and they reach out to disgruntled employee Dennis Nedry played yes. by uh, the great Wayne Knight in the movie. Um, and um, Dennis Nedry is, um, you know, this, this com software, this computer software designer who's built the, uh, you know, the framework for their entire Island's security system, which is to be, you know, obviously incredibly elaborate because they're keeping literal dinosaurs. Um, and, you know, Nedry is disgruntled for, what seems to be actually good reasons he's like there he's been pushed too hard and he won't get they won't pay him for you know all his work they gave paid him a flat rate and when he wanted to update stuff they wouldn't pay him more for more work and so he ended up being angry and agreeing to you know side with engines enemies um and you know deliver them frozen dinosaur embryos yes. um leading to obviously some pretty chaotic and catastrophic results um, yeah yeah, doesn't end the, up well for him. He doesn't get his money. Yeah, and the and, and the alert. results. Yeah, and the and the the results of uh, of this research are actually from a very from very early on. It's really interesting um, because Doctor um, Doctor Mister Hammond's the billionaire's uh, proof of concept that he uses to attract mm. investors to Jurassic Park is this tiny elephant that's been yep. um like a dwarf element fit yeah a dwarf elephant that can fit on like a, a desk right mm -hmm. that you can keep as a pet and he uses that as a proof of concept for hey we've got this business where we can essentially create uh, these entirely new creatures or indeed resurrect old ones as he does mm -hmm. with jurassic park and but there's a twist Yes, there's a twist, which is that the um, the show never lasts long enough to um, to demonstrate all the problems with uh, with such a small creature. And right? In fact, they didn't genetically engineer the elephant. It's just a dwarf elephant that they use. They just keep small through like engineering. So it isn't even like a unique creature that he made himself. So it's, you know, it's smoke and mirrors from the beginning. Yes. Um, and Hammond, of... though, fully buys his own BS. You know, Hammond is not some guy who is is i mean he's cynical yes 
but he does believe in his heart of hearts that he is doing something fantastic and that he is like a great man of history and that he is a genius. And, um, you know, to be clear, Hammond doesn't really do anything besides pay for stuff. Um, Hammond is not a scientist. Uh, he is not, uh, you know, a designer of the park. He does not get the work done. He has, you know, very brilliant men uh, who work with him who get that done. He's just very good at hiring very talented people and then sort of taking credit for it. Not mm -hmm. unlike, um, you know, basically every single billionaire you can think of. Elon Musk. The world. Elon Musk, though, you know, one, one Elon Musk, if he tried to make Jurassic Park, would, uh, would 100% go this way. I don't think he would make, I, I mean, if he got to the dinosaur stage, I, I really think Elon Musk would, uh, I'm just trying to imagine Elon Musk's Jurassic Park and it's just like, oh man, the, uh, the velociraptors, this, that, and the other. I mean, he would uh, talk about the level of deniability, the you know, deniability that um, Hammond has the whole time. He's denying, like, oh, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. Like Elon Musk is going to be like, I'm going to make friends with the velociraptors myself and get eaten instantly. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, which now that I'm thinking about it, maybe he should make Jurassic Park. Uh, <laughs> yeah, somebody should tweet at him. Yeah, there you go. He, he'd do it. He'd do it. Um, but yeah, um, so you have this, and you know, he's flying out. So he's flying in these scientists uh, to come to what is it? Isla Nubar is that the name of it? Uh, Isla uh, Nubar, yeah. Isla Nubar, uh, and uh, this this private island he owns off the coast of Costa Rica, um, and to come see the dinosaurs. And uh, you know, from the very beginning um, of them seeing it, first of all, just my part of this is my criticism of the structure of the novel is. You know, in the movie, you contrast it to the movie, you have this amazing reveal of the dinosaurs, right? It's just an all-time scene of the music, this, that, and the other. It's, like, very flat when they reveal it in the book. Um, you know what it is ahead of time. There's no suspense. Uh, everybody kind of understands ahead of time what's it going to be. They kind of let it trickle. Uh, you don't have this, a like, great, huge moment. They kind of see the dinosaurs, and it's interesting, but it, 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 does, it doesn't, like, really stop to revel in the majesty of the moment. Um, and so it just from the beginning falls kind of flat for me. Like I never feel this, uh, this wonder at Jurassic Park from the beginning. It's always just kind of a sort of technical slog. Um, yeah, and, and I, yeah, and it's not sorry. cinematic at all. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, yeah. And sorry to cut you off, but I mean, well, no, I good. think you, I think you nailed it right there though. That it's, that it's not cinematic. I think mm -hmm. this, I think at this stage, um, I'll defend that particular point because like at this stage, the books, the books, um, among this book sins is that we're reading it after the film right right so it's um it's difficult to it's difficult i think to really to really convey that um well i don't it's not difficult to convey that sense of wonder in uh, in prose i just don't think that's what michael Crichton's going for like because it's as you say you're absolutely right like you know from the beginning that there are dinosaurs about um and it's that suspense that um is that suspense that he's maintaining for the fact of it going wrong, right? Because he, because the way that Crichton sort of drip feeds us the facts of the situation and what's going on is, I think, is I think pretty neat, right? Because you get the you get the flashes of the dinosaur encounters reported in uh, Costa Rica. You get um, the half-eaten dinosaur corpse sent to that lab at Columbia University, and then you get like the results of that analysis faxed over to. Uh, Alan Grant, right? So mm. you get that dramatic irony of like 
you know that you, the reader, know that there are dinosaurs, and you ha- you get to see it dawn on this paleontologist who's only ever known them as 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 uh, long dead creatures. You know, so it's. it's I just a, don't feel like you yeah. get like a holy hell, there are dinosaurs moment. Like even inside the brains of the characters, like they're interested, but it's even. I don't know. I'm like even imagining Alan Grant, like what he should be feeling yeah. and what we actually get. I just don't think it matches. Like, yeah, it's obviously a different structure, and that's fine. But I do feel like there is just something to it that is so clinical that we never really get to revel in the fact that, like, there are dinosaurs. Like, this is insane. Like, it's all of them being like, yeah, we knew this was genetically possible. Like, it's kind of – and maybe that's, you know, what Crichton's going for. But for me, that, that I don't know, maybe cheapens the wonder of it a little bit. What wonder there is, they get out of the way very quickly. Sure, sure. Um, and there definitely is never – and. um there definitely is never a question that the park is going to fail, which is fine. Um, I don't know if that there's even intended to be suspense over that, but um, you know, there, there definitely is never a question. The park is going to fail from the beginning. You know, this, you know, the book is framed through uh, these, uh, what, what, what are they even called? Like they're um, every, every now and then there is a, uh, there's a break and it'll have a image of uh, like a fractal forming and it connects to uh, Ian Malcolm's chaos theory. Yes, um, yes, it's it's as as I understand it, it's from a um, it's from a lecture or a dissertation that he's that he's delivering about the inevitability of certain complex systems to uh, spiral out of control in ways that uh, we can't necessarily predict. Right, and his constant. We can go ahead and talk about that. You know, John Hammond does not like Ian Malcolm. Uh, Ian Malcolm is, I mean, in, is a critic. He says, "Hey, this concept's." fantastic and amazing but also impossible and he you know uses the example of a weather pattern right you know it's uh pretty simple to you know for physics to describe uh if you throw a ball what arc it'll go at if it's you know consistent but a weather pattern the slightest detail change on this giant uh in these giant storms um will change the weather so dramatically that there's just no way of knowing where it's going to go which means that we can't you know, accurately predict the weather more than like a few hours ahead of time and even then not perfectly. And his point behind that is a massive system like Jurassic Park is uh, inherently unstable. And it also connects to his kind of view of everything um, and the idea in, in this inherent skepticism that, um, that you know, we can have this sort of handle over society and, and really anything because uh, the breadth of the perspective is it, it's so big that it's almost it's arrogance to predict the movement of anything. Um, and, you know, Hammond sort of poo-poos this and he's just like, no, I've, we've got this. We've got our electric fences. We've got this and that. And, you know, and Malcolm's being kind of a hater, uh, correctly so. And is just saying, no, nah, like it's it's all going to fall apart. And uh, of a, course it is. Um, it's a Frankenstein sort of um, sort of thing, isn't it? That yeah. um, that, you know, you, there's only trouble to be had playing in God's domain. That is the end of part one of our Jurassic Park episode. If you enjoyed that, please go and follow us on social media uh, at Socialist Shelf. You know, um, tell a friend, talk to some folks about it. Uh, you know, if you really want to devote your whole life to our program, that's also allowed. Just, just little things, little things. But yes, we appreciate each and every person who listens to the Socialist Shelf. And we will be back next week with part two of Jurassic Park. Da 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 playing it out. Da 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 Hopefully I don't get like copyrighted on that. <laughs>